As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Before we get started today, listeners, I'm going to take a punt and say that it's likely that some of you are gentlemen of a certain age and you've spent slash wasted several hours of your life playing football manager down the years. But if you wanted to get better at the game, you can join our very own Ian McIntosh, author of the world-famous Football Manager Stole My Life, on Tuesday the 25th of May for the Ultimate Football Manager Masterclass. Sports Interactive's Tom Davidson will deliver a top-level briefing on the secrets of FM21 and then former Rangers Aston Villa and Birmingham manager Alec McLeish will pass on some real-life lessons from his nearly 25 years in real-life management. There are top prizes to be won too, including the opportunity to take on McLeish in a live-streamed winner-takes-all game of FM21. The event is all online and you can get your ticket for only £7 right now over at link.dice.fm masterclass that's really catchy so we'll do it one more time link.dice.fm slash masterclass it's the most wonderful time of the year and unlike christmas it hasn't let us down from bournemouth's lightning counter to andre ayu's magic feet Blackpool's cold-blooded execution of Oxford United. And Sims gets there and scores! Blackpool are taking charge of proceedings. To Joe Bursick's emergency save. He's there again, trying to get it onto that favoured right foot of his. Good work again by the keeper. Matty Dolan's long-range stinger. Oh, what a stormer! An absolutely magnificent goal! And a pulsating affair at Prenton Park. He's got it out to Stockton and in! They've done it again! This is the Totally Football League show Extra Time, sponsored by Paddy Power, and we have been absolutely spoiled by the first legs of the EFL playoff semi finals. Yes, hello, it's me, Ali Maxwell here with George Ellick as ever. And George, you've been out and about this week. I've been watching it all on the box, but you spent some time at the actual football. Yeah, do we have to talk about it on this podcast? Uh, <laughs> I, was, I was at Oxford against Blackpool and we'll get on to the game later. But I must say, and this might sound a bit weird, being at the game 
and seeing your side be demolished in a playoff semi-final would normally leave me in a bad mood for hours after, days after. Whereas after the game that I went to go and see on Tuesday evening, pretty soon after I realised everything just kind of was okay because I was at the football, I was back with my family doing what I love doing. And that was a nice remedy to what was a pretty disappointing evening. So fans back, I was back and I absolutely loved it. I do think there's been a, a nice reminder from the football gods that as, as excited as everyone is to be back in the stadium, it doesn't mean your team is going to do the business for you. From the from the uh, first night where those Barnsley fans were full of cheer and voice and then lost at home to Swansea. Um, but of course, we've had plenty of home fans who have cheered their team on to success as well. More on that game later. It is the midpoint of the playoff semi-finals, so we're going to take you through it all with those who are at the games to get you ready for the second legs. And as ever, we're starting in the championship, where you have to say both games are deliciously poised. Uh, Harry, is there any truth in the rumours that you're off to Spain in the summer? Uh, 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 sorry, me, uh, me no hablo inglés. <laughs> what about one of the Manchester clubs? Oh, uh, well, you know, it's... Uh... Well, Harry, what about my source who says you're keen to stay at Spurs? <laughs> uh, can we keep the question sensible, please? Kane's future at Spurs remains uncertain, but you're guaranteed to get money back as a free bet if one leg of your four-fold acre lets you down. Paddy Power! Max free bet £10, min odds 1 to 5 on each leg. Online exclusive exclude shop bets and enhanced match odds. T's and C's apply. 18 plus begumbleaware.org. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker and now ad-free on The Athletic. This is the Totally Football League show Extra Time with George Ellick and Ali Maxwell. George, we started on Monday evening, Bournemouth against Brentford. There was such a huge storm beforehand that it felt like we were going to see the world end before we'd actually get to these playoff semi-finals that we had spoken so much about in the week leading up to it. In the end, Bournemouth beat Brentford 1-0 and we'll head to West London with that advantage. It is set up beautifully. What did you think about the game itself? I mean, it feels like such a long time ago now. Uh, it was it was a lot of football ago. Um, it was a a relatively tight game, I would say. I, I think it was kind of a, a big game state game where up until the first goal, well, the only goal on 55 minutes, Bournemouth were very much deserving of their win. And then after they went down, Brentford probably had the chances to get back into it. The, the glaring miss from Brian and Bomo, probably the key moment in this tie so far. I'm not entirely sure how he managed to time his run so well onto the back post, meet the ball cleanly um, with, the, with the goal gaping in front of him and managed to still not hit the target. Um, Do you think there's a little bit of revisionism in playoff semi-final first legs where you kind of look at the scoreline and work out your opinions from there and perhaps at times things like that and Burma chance get overlooked? Like how differently would this game be being talked about had he tucked that away and they're heading back to Brentford with a one-all scoreline rather than the one-nil Bournemouth. Yeah, definitely. But then, but then I, I guess in these environments where the prize at stake is so big, missing a chance like that is is you know tantamount to a, a, a disappointing performance. So there are other games I think we're going to talk about on this podcast where that is is more the case. But I don't think anyone can really begrudge Bournemouth their their lead here. The goal itself came from two bits of absolute quality. The, the pass from David Brooks for the assist was magnificent and Arno Danjuma, Ali, you're swooning uh, on the other end <laughs> of this of this line. Was, the um, coolest was man in the finish. league with the yeah. coolest finish imaginable. Exactly. And, and that was, we always knew that Bournemouth have the individual qualities in, in certain areas of the pitch, especially in that final third, 
to do that against any side. And, and the fact they hadn't done it for three or four games didn't mean it wasn't going to happen here. But I, I would say that in this tie, Brentford showed consistently on Monday that they are able to create chances. I think that being back at home where it may not be Griffin Park, but their record at their new stadium is is very, very good indeed. This tie is, you know, it's definitely advantage Bournemouth, but only because they, you know, that they take the lead back to back to Brentford. There's not a great deal um, in this one still because Brentford will still be the overwhelming favourites going into the second leg. It was interesting to me that in both regular season games, Bournemouth had started strongly and Brentford had finished the stronger of the two sides and they'd won both of those games, in fact. And that played out again up until about the hour mark, or rather up until the first goal. Bournemouth clearly had the better of, of what was a cagey first half. You had their fullbacks causing problems. Uh, Smith set up Billing, Kelly set up Solanke, who hit the post, and they had started stronger. But I thought from about half an hour until Dan Juma's goal, it was Brentford who looked like they were growing in confidence. And it almost ended up being their undoing, because you can imagine the week leading up to the game, of course, there's a lot of talk about the individual quality of Bournemouth. But when they've been at their best this season, it's been in transition. They're, they're on the counter-attack. Their skill or their real quality doesn't really come in breaking down teams that sit deep. That's where they've struggled at times. And you would have thought that Thomas Frank would have spent all week hammering home the importance of avoiding any situations where Brentford were turned, running back towards their own goal with that Bournemouth front four flooding forward. So I found it so difficult to understand why Pontus Janssen decided that with Brentford on top and with possession in Bournemouth's final third, he needed to join in with play on the right wing. He gave the ball away. Janelt then compounded the issue by diving in, missing his tackle. And and honestly, when you watch the goal back, there's 10 seconds where you know that Bournemouth are going to score. And, and you felt it at the time. As soon as the ball was played to Brooks, you knew that they were going to get it right because that's what those players do. Of course, Begovic played his part with a good save from Marcondes and that huge Burmo chance. I think the second leg is set up so nicely indeed because from a Brentford perspective, they will be very confident, I think, that they'll play better than they did in the first leg. I think they'll be a little bit disappointed with some of the individual performances. We were looking forward to seeing, you know, Fosu in this fluid number 10 role, Marcus Force up top. I would say both of those players didn't live up to expectations there. Um, and, and they will feel more confident playing at home and probably more confident knowing the job that they have to do in terms of, uh, of coming back from this one goal deficit. But I'm interested in what Bournemouth do here, they, they made a defensive change to go to three at the back, five at the back, if you like, in the last 15 minutes. And honestly, I felt that just invited pressure onto themselves unnecessarily. So I'm really interested in Woodgate's mindset here and in, in his tactics. Will he set up to defend the lead? And if so, are they good enough defensively, Bournemouth, to sit in and soak up pressure like that? I'm not sure they are. I don't think they've done that very often. So, of course, if they do that, they'll they'll think, well, the more Brentford come onto us, the more chances we'll have to counterattack like we did for our goal here. So it's a really interesting tactical battle, a bit of cat and mouse, I think, here, and a fascinating goal. I, I don't know what your thoughts are, George, but I'm going to tell you that I think this is going to extra time. I think Brentford will win by one goal in 90 minutes. Uh, extra time, possibly penalties. It's, uh, it's set up very, very nicely. Just a word on, on Brentford's at home as well. You know, you mentioned are Bournemouth good enough to just sit in and, and almost play out the tie. Uh, Brentford have failed to score five times at home this season. Four of those games have ended nil-nil and one of them a 2-0 defeat to Barnsley, which kind of shows you, I guess, that yes, Brentford are very hard to beat when you go to their place. But teams like Birmingham, Millwall, 
Derby and Borough are the four sides who've held them to nil-nil draws. So maybe there is something in, you know, just drop in, just, you know, don't worry about what you're doing going forward. It is possible to stop the Brentford attacking machine if you if you do sacrifice some of your attacking intent. Well, Barnsley hosted Swansea not long after full-time there. The score was 1-0, but this time it was the away side, Swansea, who got the job done in the first leg. And Stuart James of The Athletic keeps a very close eye on all things Swansea City. He joins us now to chat about that first leg and what's to come. Stu, I mean, Swansea, unfancied by almost everyone previewing the playoffs, myself included, Steve Cooper's... Selection and his tactics felt quite bold and maybe a little less pragmatic than some expected, a little less reactive to, to Barnsley's uh, fairly unique style of play. And, and I must admit, Twitter is not the best barometer uh, for fan <laughs> sentiment, perhaps. But it felt yeah. like when that lineup was announced that fan expectation was quite low before kickoff, from what I could see. Would that be fair to say, do you think? Yeah, I, I think the Swans fans are in such a um, tangled state over all this now because the season didn't finish brilliantly in terms of the results and there were hopes for a while of getting automatic promotion and then that sort of unravelled towards the end. And then Cooper changed the formation and moved away from this three-man central defence to play in a four, which kind of worked, kind of didn't sometimes. So there were, I think you know, there was a sort of reasonable section of the fan base who would like to have seen him go back to three at the back, five at the back, if you include the wing-backs, which he obviously didn't do. And and not only that, he played Cabango and Gurhi together, two really young centre-backs against a very, what we knew was going to be a very physical Barnsley team. Left out Connor Roberts, who's probably been player of the season in a lot of people's eyes, but has played predominantly as a wing-back and went with the experience of Carl Norton at right-back. So on the face of it, they've, they've got the best results so far because obviously they, they were away from home in that, in that first leg and, and they've come away with a win. But it obviously is only a, only a slender lead and uh, you know, nobody at Swansea, fans, players, staff, what, you know, whatever, would be taking anything for granted going into the second leg. It only needs obviously a, you know, a Barnsley goal in the, in the first half and then you're you know, it's it's wide open again. What about Steve Cooper and his character? Because he doesn't seem quite as punchy, if that's the right word, as as perhaps um, your average EFL manager. No, I think that's a good summary of him, Manny. That that's that's I think that's Steve all over. I remember meeting him for the first time many years ago. I was on a sitting in on a um, football association of Wales uh, A license course, and and. Um, he was coming in, I think he'd not long left Liverpool's academy at the time to do a presentation. And he did this presentation on um, playing 4-3-3 uh, and what that looked like in terms of in the games, but also the training sessions that kind of underpinned it. And and it was an amazing presentation. I sat there like absolutely fascinated by it. Mm. And I remember going up afterwards, introducing myself and, and Oshin Roberts, who was taking the course, has said at the start, Stuart's here. He's going to write a piece about, you know, what happens today. And then I said to Steve, oh, I love that. That was great. I said, you know, I'd really like to include that in the piece. Is that OK? And I just assumed he'd say yes. And he was like, well, I'm, I'm not sure, really. I'm not sure. Um, and I was thinking, well, why not? I'm only going to write really nice things about it. And I think mm. that was probably a little... Uh, snapshot into what Steve's like, which is, you know, a really humble guy. Um, the last person to sort of shout from the rooftops about uh, any success that he's had. Um, that's just not his style at all. Uh, he's quite reserved on the touchline as well. He's not one of these people who 
who you know wildly celebrates goals or anything like that. Um, mm. So yeah, how he would have been post match is exactly you know in keeping with with the nature of the man really. Um, very low key, super professional, really really focused on everything, not getting carried away when Swansea were doing well this season, which probably perhaps helped when things tailed off a little bit. And it is interesting. You look at, you talk about his record. I think I've got in my head, it was 71 points last season. So they've had over 150 points across the last two seasons, which is an incredible effort, especially when you consider he hasn't had money to spend. It's something like 800,000 on Jamal Lowe. Apart from that, it's next to nothing really for people like Manning and uh, and a couple of others. He's worked the loan market really, really well in his time there. Dan James had gone just before he took over. Then McBurney was sold when he was uh, appointed. And then Joe Roden leaves early this season. Yeah. So here we are now thinking, well, if they get a result Saturday, they could be 90 minutes from returning to the Premier League. And, 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 and that is a huge feather in Steve Cooper's cap, whether they do it or not. You mentioned Cabango and Gurhi. Two twenty-year-old yeah. centre backs. I mean, the keeper Freddie Woodman. He's also been a little under fire in the last few months. Set himself very high standards again in the first half yeah. of the season and made a very big save from Callum Britton. Now, those are the sort of performances that you know can creep towards club folklore, depending on what happens over the last few weeks. But the match winner was Andre Ayew, at magic in his feet in scoring that goal. And, <laughs> you know, we saw him do the same in in last season's playoff semi-final first leg as well against Brentford. Yeah. Now, you spoke to him recently for a, a brilliant profile piece and interview for The Athletic. And Stuart, I mean, his situation at Swansea is pretty remarkable and, and fairly unique in itself in, in championship terms. Certainly the, the headline always comes back to how lofty his weekly wage is. Uh, yeah. But what sort of character did you find him to be? I found the piece fascinating and, and a real breath of fresh air, I must say. He plays as if his life depends on it. You know, and everyone would talk about the money and that's understandable, but just because you're earning a lot of money doesn't always mean that you're totally driven and determined and committed to to giving your best on the pitch and that's what IU has done for the last for the last 2 years and I found him fascinating to to talk to I mean the little anecdote he said about his first spell at Swansea when he'd been talking to me about some of the big names he played with at Marseille and what that was like for a younger player and then he says you know he walks into the changing room at Watford after the first defeat he suffers as a Swansea player and and um and everyone's pretty relaxed in there. And he's like, what, what the hell's going on here? Um, we've just lost. You know, and he says at Marseille, there would be like almost a three-day inquiry into it. And it was the end of the world. And <laughs> and I think that that's Andre's mentality. And I think that shines through when he's playing with this team now. He he does everything he can to try and bend that match into Swansea's uh, favour, really. And, and yeah, you, you know, you, you identified the goal against Brentford last season. He just missed a penalty and... And then he scored with a, a moment of brilliance. And, and it's exactly the same the other night. A, a really awful game, if we're honest. A game that was kind of going nowhere at that point. Andre had been really on the periphery of it, like a lot of players. And, um, and then he, you know, he cuts inside on that left foot. And, and it's almost like the defence, the opposition know what he's going to do, but they're still powerless to stop it in a way. And just the composure with the finish as well. So he is the one player who's who's the game changer. And I, when I put that to him in that interview, you know, sometimes players, when you say something like that, we'll go, oh, it's a team game, you know, it's not all about me. And and he didn't answer with any arrogance, but he just said, you know, it's a fact. I can't hide away from it. Um, it is what it is. And, and and I think he he almost thrives on that. He likes the fact that there's this spotlight on him and that he's carrying the team's hopes to an extent. So, yeah, it's, it's amazing, really, you know, 
to sum up that he was bought to keep Swansea up and three and a half years later, he could be actually taking them back up, you know, in a way that nobody would have imagined. Um, so, yeah, strange narrative. Well, still some work to do in the second leg and you've said you're not resting on, on your laurels, <laughs> you're not taking anything for granted. So I'm not going to ask you for a prediction, but I am going to ask you about going to the game. Uh, I, yeah. I love how adept you are at talking about the emotions of the game with the people that you interview, but also with yourself and your son, who I know has become yeah. very fond of the Swans. Um, will you guys be going to the game? And if so, what does that feel like in anticipation uh, of this weekend, heading to your first game in presumably a long, long time, like so many others? Yeah, it feels amazing, to be honest, Ali. It, it does feel quite emotional, the thought of going back there. Um, Zaki just, he's fallen in love with that foot, football club. You know, he, he thinks of it as like his, his kind of second home. In, and so many people there are super friendly. That's one of the things that drew me to the club. I had no, like, connection with Swansea, really, um, until I started reporting on them. And and it's a real community club. And Zach's loved kind of being, being part of that. So, yeah, when we found out there was going to be the ballot... 6,000 supporters were eligible if you'd kind of left your money in the club, so to speak, with your season tickets, which 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 we did. Um, you had a one in two chance of getting a ticket. And then they, uh, the email was going out yesterday morning. And, and honestly, Ali, he's been relentless, like badgering me about it, um, uh, hoping that we get in. And, and we found out yesterday we got in. So so we're really excited to be going back. Obviously, we won't be in our usual seats, but that's no no problem. Um, uh, we're just it's just going to be fun being back there. You know, yes, we're desperate, obviously, for Swansea to go through, but actually, just to just to be back at the stadium um, and to be inside there, to be watching the players, and hopefully seeing a few familiar faces around the club will, will be will be wonderful. And um, yeah, we're really really looking forward to it. I certainly recognise, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners do, that sort of deadly serious excitement that you get as a as a young child when you're, or as a, any as a, as someone of any age when your club matters that much to you. And you're going to have to wait on Saturday until six thirty for kick off two other playoff semi finals to watch beforehand and counting down the minutes, no doubt. But really appreciate you joining us, uh, chatting through the first leg and setting up the second for us, Stu. Thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure, Ali. Really nice to talk to you, pal. As always. Brilliant to get the thoughts of, of Stu there. And yeah, this one, again, I'm going to keep saying it, aren't I? It's going to get boring, but it is set up really well for the second leg, despite Swansea going home with the one-goal lead. George, you were quite strong on Barnsley before this tie, um, being you know your pick to make the final from this game. Did you feel a little bit let down by what you saw from the Tykes on Monday night? I don't know. I, I think I was more impressed maybe with Swansea's rise in performance levels, certainly in the first half, than being let down by Barnsley. I thought Barnsley in the second half did what I expected them to do early on and they were, were fairly rampant in terms of, of the way that they looked to to attack at any opportunity to stop Swansea from playing. I think this is the tie that I find the most intriguing going to the second leg. You know, you've got Swansea on a 1-0 lead with... A great deal to thank to, to Freddie Woodman for a couple of really great saves as well. Going back to their back home with fans there for the first time, having to face up to what is going to be another onslaught. Um, this is the game I'm most excited to watch back. And I think similarly to Brentford, I find it very unlikely, I guess, that both Brentford and Barnsley are going to play out 180 minutes in playoff football and not find a way to score. And if I'm right, and if Barnsley do get a goal on the road, then it's going to be... Um, back to well I mean unless it's consolation it's going to be back to a level pegging at some point point. Um, and I still 
have a sneaky suspicion that if one team is going to come back and come back from the deficit in the first legs, it might still be Valerian Ismail's Barnsley. Well, both championship second legs are on Saturday. Brentford Bournemouth at 12.30 and Swansea Barnsley at 6.30. In terms of the individual matches themselves, well, Brentford are the favourites with Paddy Power to win at 19 to 20, with Bournemouth at 14 to 5 and the draw 12 to 5. It gets very interesting if you look at the to qualify odds. Bournemouth 1 to 2 and Brentford 6 to 4. So although Brentford favourites to win the match itself, Bournemouth more likely, according to Paddy Power, to head to Wembley. In terms of Swans and Barnsley, well, Swansea 17 to 10 to win the second leg, Barnsley 13 to 8, and the draw 21 to 10. In terms of the to qualify market, that means who will win the tie, not just the match. Swansea 2 to 7, strong favourites, and Barnsley at 12 to 5. Next up, George, I'm sorry to say, we're heading to League One. Brace yourself. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic. This is the Totally Football League Show Extra Time with George Ellick and Ali Maxwell. Okay, let's look at these League One playoff semi-final first legs. We're going to treat this like a band-aid, George, and just rip it straight off. You went to Oxford United nil, Blackpool 3 at the Kassam Stadium. Of all of these semi-final first legs, this one was the biggest win or... If you're on the other side of the coin, I'm afraid the heaviest defeat. What was it like to watch the game in the stadium and to see Blackpool pull ahead and then go further and further ahead in the second half? The, the answer to those two questions are very different. Uh, <laughs> it was great to be in the stadium and to see the game and to be amongst fans and hear chants and have that anticipation and excitement when the teams come out um, and moan loudly when referees make decisions you feel have gone against you and... Um, swear probably quite loudly when you see the opposition score. I, I cannot tell you, sadly, um, what it's like to see a goal go in um, for your team. In terms of the match itself, you know, Blackpool are just a brutally efficient football team. Um, they are a side who, I think, because of the way that they play and the way that they set up, you always think you are in with a chance. And that's not to say that they, it's because they, necessarily give up chances consistently it's just because they're pretty happy out of possession to drop in they're pretty happy to let you have the ball for long periods of the game um, it's almost feels like a strategic point from Neil Critchley where he will look to manage games in a way that says look take 20 minutes out of it that's fine like you know we don't have to be looking to attack and score at any opportunity which is kind of the total opposite of the way that Oxford approach games um, they lure you in and then they hit you on the counter and break your heart um, the first 20 minutes, I thought Oxford were 
well, looked the brighter of the two sides. Um, there was a big moment after two minutes where Mark Sykes was brought down, um, which Carl Robinson said after the game he thought was a blatant red card. I, I think that is pushing it a little bit. I think it could have been given a red, and, and if it had been, then Blackpool fans probably would have been pretty angry about it because there was a, a covering defender who was about level with Sykes. And then the first goal was from a terrible bit of defending from Josh Ruffles um, from a set piece. The second goal, I mean, a, a great bit of play by the by the best player on the pitch by miles on the night. Um, Ellis Sims, who's on loan from from Everton, twenty year old striker who looks like he's got every single attribute you'd want from a from a striker. Um, they were, and then in the second half again, a couple of key moments that went awry for Oxford. A, a big chance for Sykes in a one on one that Chris Maxwell saved, but realistically. Even though Oxford will feel like they had a lot of the ball, had had their fair share of chances, it was Blackpool who probably missed the two best chances of the game on top of their 3-0 loss. You know, Jerry Yates missed from a tight angle in the second half and in the first half, Jack, Jack Stevens made a great save as well. So, I mean, I don't think there's much positivity going into the game um, this evening at time of recording on, on Friday morning. Um, but... You know, stranger things have happened than a 3-0 away win, let's say. So, um, yeah, I'll be I'll be watching still. If there was any team in League One that you'd pick to suddenly smash someone by three or four goals, it has to be Oxford United. And, and that's not because you're a fan of the, the club and I'm trying to make you feel better, but Oxford United scored three goals or more in the League One season, more than any other side in the division. So I guess that's the main hope for Oxford. You might need what would be, I'm sure, described as an implosion or a bottle job from Blackpool. Now, there's nothing particular to suggest that that's on the cards based on their last, what, six months of football. But we would have said the same about Cheltenham Town in last year's League Two playoffs. They were 2-0 up after the first leg and lost 3-2 to Northampton. So it's not even that this would be a once-in-a-lifetime thing. This is something that kind of we saw last season. So I'm not writing you off just yet but as you know I'm a big fan of this Blackpool side and I was very impressed with the way that they played on Tuesday night. Next up it's time to talk Lincoln against Sunderland. A 2-0 win for the Imps in front of Totally Football League Show's own Adrian Clark. I feel like Adrian when we're talking about any of these games in the playoffs we have to start by asking about the fans because they were back and it's big games and it's important. What was the atmosphere like on the day? Oh, tremendous. Absolutely brilliant. And and it was just a real treat to be inside the stadium, to, to enjoy that atmosphere. It looked and sounded like a lot more than, than 3,145 or whatever it was. It was, yeah, I think the fans did the team proud. And I, I, I feel that they did impact the type of match we saw as well, which was very, very attack-minded. In the end, we saw... 32 shots, mm. which in a playoff semi-final first leg is almost unheard of. So, so yeah, it was it was it was a really really good evening. Yeah, Tom Hopper got the opener uh, halfway through the second half, uh, and then Brennan Johnson with the with the second after closing down the keeper um, Lee Burgess clearance and putting it into the back of the net. I mean, what those moments? They're, they're such big goals these, especially for a side like Lincoln who. Getting into the championship, um, what a decade after dropping out of the EFL altogether, would be such a massive achievement. Coming up against a side in Sunderland who will feel like that is at least their uh, their rightful place in the EFL. I mean, how yeah. were the goals celebrated? How how were those moments themselves? <laughs> oh, lift off! Yeah, the place erupted. Uh, look, yeah, a few years ago, you don't have to go back too far, and we're talking Premier League versus Conference. Yeah. And uh, but you would never know it. Two very evenly matched teams. I think they ended up 
the regular season on, on the same number of points actually and and it wasn't much to choose between between the two sides it was it was a game of the keepers in my opinion obviously Lee Burge had a had a nightmare moment sold short a touch by the back pass but but even so you have to put that down as a as a real blooper from him so so he cost his team a huge goal and at the other end of the pitch I mean Joseph Bursic had a dream debut it was it was frighteningly good um controversial clearly the, the fact that he was allowed to play for Lincoln as an emergency goalkeeper I, I still f- feel that loophole is is wrong personally but, but you can't blame Lincoln for for bringing him in and and he just I mean one of the saves I, th- I think from Jordan Jones in the second half just plucked one out of the top corner it was it was ridiculous it was just one of those nights where Sunderland threw a lot at it but they they couldn't beat an inspired Lincoln City goalkeeper. Now, can he repeat those heroics at the Stadium of Light? <laughs> that I think is that, that, that's a bigger question mark. But um, well, I mean, I, I think Michael Appleton said that Alex Palmer is going to be back fit and playing at the Stadium of Light. In which case, I think drop be, him. That'll, that'll be Bursic's <laughs> one and only Lincoln appearance. Which, Lincoln appearance, which would be incredible. I mean, the the, the kind of the narrative that's that's come out of the game, maybe unsurprisingly, from Sunderland fans, is that they were it was a, it was a bad performance, and from Lincoln fans, that they were brilliant. Do you think mm. that that accurately re- reflects the balance of the game? No, not really. I like Lincoln. I mean, I like Lincoln's style of play under Michael Appleton because basically when they get the ball, their first thought is to attack. Let's just get out of the opposition. And that's really refreshing to watch. And on those transitions, they just look really dangerous. But I didn't think Lincoln's sort of young guns, the star kids, Brennan Johnson and, and Morgan Rogers, for as good as they looked at times and they were really dangerous, they travel with the ball well, I felt that their, their sort of end product could have been a lot better, actually. The, 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 the final passes were, weren't brilliant. And I think Michael Appleton said afterwards that he didn't feel his team were at it completely how he wanted them to be, mm. which I, I thought was was really interesting. I kind of got where he was coming from. It took, I, I thought The defence was great. Um, Lewis Montsmer, who came on in the first half, yeah, I mean, he, he won his duel with Charlie White. Uh, hands down, that was that that was good. Um, no, and I didn't think Sunderland were awfully awfully either. It was a case of they were a bit fancy with the way they played, with the rotation of the midfielders. It was quite sophisticated, but but ultimately they didn't get anywhere with that movement, which which I thought was quite clever. Um, and in, in the second half, they just went four four two. Let's get the wide, get the ball wide to to McGeady and Gooch, and and see what we can do. And and they had. They could easily have scored a couple of goals. So I, I think Sunderland fans should have heart. They're definitely not out of this tie. And Lincoln fans obviously will, will, will feel they've got one, one foot at Wembley. I think we're in for a real cracker. I see both teams scoring in this one because Sunderland have to take chances. Uh, uh, and, and yeah, I, Lincoln have to be favourites. But, but you wouldn't rule out some kind of comeback because the Black Cats have got so much talent. Yeah, this will be the first time that Lee Johnson has managed to side in front of fans at the Stadium of Light mm. with the old Roka Raw um, and probably quite an intimidating place for, for Lincoln to travel to. I mean, we just a, a last point on the players because I guess it's no surprise that it was such a good fixture for, for the neutral to watch given the attacking talent on display, whether it's McGeady, Wyke and Jones or, of course, for Lincoln, Johnson, Scully and Morgan Rogers, who do you think will hold the key? Who impressed you the most from that first game? Uh, they all did, actually, at various times. They travelled the ball excellently. I thought Jordan Jones was unlucky to, to get the hook, actually. I thought he'd, he he's a really powerful runner, isn't he? That really struck me, and I'd be surprised if he doesn't start this game. Now, they've all got 
they've all got quality attributes. Um, I just feel there's a bit more guile about Sunderland. You know, they're more likely maybe to stick one in the top corner, a Gooch or, or a McGeady. But, but, but Lincoln have got that rawness and pace and they get him behind. Scully as well, you're right to point him out. He's a, a player that's got goals in him. Um, so yeah, look, Lincoln have more goal threats, don't they, really? Well, especially when you look at the stats. I mean, Sunderland very reliant on Charlie White and he was put in the back pocket by the Lincoln centre-halves in this one. Um, so, so Lincoln, you would say, um, yeah, they've got more of a breadth of, of danger men. And, and even in this game, I felt that Lee Johnson was taking chances. They left themselves really light at the back at times. I can only see that increasing at the Stadium of Light where they're chasing it. So, yeah, I, I think... Rogers, Johnson, and, and and Scully can can hurt them. Whether we'll play all three, given that they've got a lead, I'm not so sure. One of them might be on the bench for this one. They might, you know, play it a bit safer. But I can see one of those guys certainly hurting Sunderland uh, on the transition. Yeah, definitely going to be a really interesting second leg. Thank you very much, Adrian, for taking the time to talk to us today about being at the game uh, earlier in the week. My pleasure. So we've heard Adrian's thoughts on the game there, Ali, and we saw on social media after the match, a lot of Sunderland fans not very happy with the team's performance. Do you agree with this idea that they were incredibly poor on the night or do you think that's maybe just a reflection of the scoreline rather than the performance itself? Fascinating question and something that I've been wrestling with a lot since watching this game because, look, I mean, it's very easy to look at the scoreline and criticise Sunderland for a... I've seen certainly one set of Sunderland fans call it a shameful display. And let me be clear that were I a Sunderland fan, I would feel very let down. I would certainly not be inspired by this team or the way that they play. I would feel like we are destined to miss out on promotion again uh, in a in, in you know in a new way after missing out for the last few seasons as well. And I would be feeling very, very down because the playoffs stir emotions in fans that basically can't be matched anywhere else. But as someone who has to break down these games and try and think about them objectively, I don't think I can, in good faith anyway, agree that Sunderland's performance was shameful here. Uh, And it was a strange game to watch because I think most neutrals would lean towards wanting Lincoln to win this game because they have a lot of young players and neutrals love young talent. They play quite nice football. You know, the goalkeeper Bursic spent the first half just popping the ball to his centre-backs and they'd play on from there. Lots of short passing and, you know, aesthetically pleasing football compared to Sunderland's, which always looks fairly clunky. It can be quite direct. There's not a huge amount that you'd say is, you know, generally considered aesthetically pleasing. But... I think if you re- remember what football is most you know is most about which is opportunities to score and how good you are at reducing those for the opposition you can't tell me that Lincoln battered Sunderland here or that they were much the better side I don't think there was much between them and the football looks very different between both boxes as discussed and I think that can cloud one's judgment and maybe myself thought you know Lincoln clearly the better side here and then I had to check myself because Sunderland hit the bar before Lincoln had scored. Bailey Wright headed onto the bar again from five yards at nil-nil. And then a few minutes later, a deflected cross fell perfectly for Hopper to 
open the scoring. It's not like Lincoln grew in confidence and kicked on from there either. Sunderland were the better side when they were chasing the game at 1-0. If McGeady had perhaps been a little more precise, if he'd had a little more help, dare I say it, from some of his uh, colleagues in the final third, Sunderland created chances. And if Joe Bursick had been a little less excellent, then clearly... You know, the most likely outcome would have been a Sunderland goal. Instead, a dreadful mistake at the back and they find themselves 2-0 down. So, yes, I can understand the frustration and the fairly extreme reaction that we saw. I think, I guess I just feel, George, that there's so much luck that plays a part and and precision, you know, and taking your chances and not making stupid mistakes, etc. But on general balance of play, it was very even for me. And I think if they play the same match again, on Saturday, and if Sunderland can avoid that one massive mistake that handed Lincoln an easy goal, I think there's every chance Sunderland could win the second leg by two goals or more at the Stadium of Light. I don't think this is over for a second, and I guess it just comes back to what we touched on at the top. You know, it's 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 very easy and understandably so to look at the scoreline and work back from there when you're analysing a game. But that's not how I experienced this game. So I just wanted to 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 maybe try and give a bit of hope to Sunderland fans. I don't think this is over at all. And I just think this is an interesting conversation to have because these playoff semi-final first legs are such specific footballing affairs. Yeah, Ali, agree entirely with what you've said. And we'll start with the Sunderland-Lincoln odds on Saturday. And Sunderland are the 10 to 11 favourites to win the game. The draw 12 to 5, Lincoln 3 to 1 with Paddy Power. And tonight, Blackpool versus Oxford. Blackpool 5 to 4 to win it. The draw 12 to 5, Oxford 2 to 1. But as we know, they need to do a lot more than just win the game. Next, Ali, we are heading to League 2. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. You're listening to the Totally Football League show Extra Time from Muddy Knees Media and The Athletic. Last night we had Tranmere versus Morecambe at Prenton Park and Morecambe ran out the 2-1 winners alley. I was probably the only person watching this in a pub in East London, which was exciting. <laughs> what did you make of it? What, you mean the, the Tranmere London Supporters Club wouldn't have been I, watching that in a pub in East London? I turned up at the pub and said, can you put the football on? And the guy was like, mate, there, I don't think there is any football tonight. Um, I think just assuming that like everybody else in the world, they would, I thought there was a Premier League game on every single day of the of the year. And I was like, yeah, I think you'll find Tramier v Morecambe is on. And he gave me a look that I can only express as pity before going over and putting it on the TV. Well, if he had even half an eye on the game itself, George, then I think he will now be subscribed to this and any other EFL podcast. He was podcast. wearing a Morecambe shirt when I left. <laughs> Because he would have watched a pulsating game of League Two playoff football. It was so good, this one. There was a there was a real risk after five really good playoff semi-finals that this last one, for whatever reason, was just going to be a, a bit of a damp squib. But far from it. The Tramier fans really brought the noise, really brought the energy. And that's kind of what Mark Palios, the chairman, was after when he sacked Keith Hill uh, in the build-up to these games. He wanted the support from the fans and they certainly got it. But... They didn't get the result, did they? Because Morecambe, who out of the four playoff teams finished uh, in that top slot, who we said beforehand we thought were the best team, but there were a few wild cards, one of them being Tranmere uh, playing now under caretaker manager Ian Dawes. Now, 
there were there was a flurry of early goals. Nathaniel Knight Percival scoring sort of second phase following a corner that Tramia couldn't clear. Then Peter Clark, their centre back, who made his Premier League debut for Everton over 20 years ago, scored a thumping back post header uh, from a great cross from the left back. Uh, and McAlinden just after half time made it 2 1 for Morecambe. Again, Tramir failing to clear their lines properly. It was a brilliant piece of play, uh, improvisation from Diagaraga to set up the cross. And McAlinden, uh, I, d- I don't know what the right word is, George. I've been trying to avoid saying <laughs> this, but I'm just going to come out with it. Both of Morecambe's goals appeared to uh, come off a very delicate part. <laughs> Of their goal scorers' bodies, I, I can't remember two well, two face. two goals. No, no, they're um they're uh, <laughs> genitals. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, <laughs> yes, I mean that is what happened. To be fair, so I don't know why I'm acting so surprised. Um, I would also, in a weird way, argue that especially Nat Knight Percival's was a great finish. You know, he managed to kind of contort his body to a means that we get good connection and, and get it into the back of the net. Um, yeah, as I said was, on Twitter, Derek Adams finds every edge. Yes, yes. I mean, I'm trying to find the innuendo there, and I, I don't know if I can. No but, innuendo. Um, no, I'm avoiding all of that. Nothing, nothing smutty nothing from me untoward. here. Um, Just pure I, analysis. <laughs> I, um, yeah, I thought on the face of it, this looks like vintage Morecambe, doesn't it? Twenty-five percent possession, two-one win away from home, couple of set-piece goals. But in a, in a similar way to what we've already discussed with both the maybe the the, the Bournemouth Brentford game and the um, Sunderland Lincoln game, I don't think it necessarily tells the whole story. I think Tranmere were far far better than they have been in recent weeks uh, in this game. They got the reaction that they wanted from um, parting company with Keith Hill and bringing back the the, the dream team caretaker duo um, of Ian Dawes and Andy Parkinson. I think on another day, they probably could have won this. I think Chamier fans would argue that both of the goals that Morecambe scored could easily have been ruled out for fouls or handballs. Um, yeah, it was a, a case of, of Morecambe coming out on top in a game that definitely could have gone either way. You know, mm. Chamier had 17 shots in the game. Um, they were the dominant force in terms of possession, which we'd expect, but also in terms of creating chances. And I actually think they did an incredibly good job of stopping Morecambe on the counter. I thought Jay Spearing sitting in that hole was kind of the perfect antidote to it. Somebody who would be happy to to get back and, and, and make the tackle or make the foul needed to stop it. Um, Morecambe had very, very little joy at all um, from those positions. And there, there were probably four or five times where you saw Morecambe get the ball just inside their own half, get four or five men forward and you thought, here we go, this is where we're going to see them at their devastating best. And it didn't happen. Um, the, the sad thing is for Tranmere fans is that they've got nothing to show for it. Um, they go to Morecambe behind. It's going to be incredibly difficult for them to turn that around. I have more faith in them being able to do so now than I would have done before the before the first leg because I do think there was an improvement in terms of the way they, they approached the game. Um, but it's going to be a tough ask now for them to go and, and do, do do one on them. Although I would say if the game follows a similar pattern, then it's you know you can easily see Chamier winning the game by a goal or, or maybe more. I'd like to be the first person to make the comparison between Derek Adams's Morecambe side from the 2020-21 season and Diego Simeone's Atletico Madrid side from circa 2013 to 2015. Because watching this game, and particularly for a lot of people who hadn't followed Morecambe and their style of play closely, it would have felt like Tramir were completely dominant because they had the ball for the majority of the game and and it's easy to feel like that makes them the dominant side. But 
I must say, this is how more can play. And they are one of those teams who can almost control the game without having the ball. Um, they move the opposition into wide areas. They don't let anything come through the middle. Songo and Diagaraga make sure that nothing gets anywhere near um, the front man's feet. And they back themselves to handle crosses very, very well. And they did that all game bar the one thumping header from from Peter Clark. So that really does remind me of, of Simeone's Atletico Madrid side, who were very narrow, were very, very compact and just funneled everything out wide because they backed themselves to, to, to win the headers uh, from crosses into the box. And I guess they sort of felt, well, if there's a way of beating us, you know, we'll, if, if that's going to be your main threat, then, you know, we'll accept that because every tactical plan comes with its strengths and weaknesses. And it'd be interesting to see if Tramir have any answer to that because you can you can bet your bottom dollar that they will have 75% possession again in the second leg and it's the the onus is on them really to be a little more creative to be a little more precise in the final third uh, and try and turn around this deficit but it's advantage Morecambe heading into the second leg 2-1 win for them but on Tuesday in South Wales, we had a more comfortable win. Newport County, two Forest Green Rovers, nil. Totally Football League show pundits were all over the place this week. Sam Parkin was at this one. So Super Sam Parkin was at Newport 2, Forest Green nil. He joins us to dissect what was a really interesting game and a big win for Newport County, you have to say. We said at the top of the show, some fans went and watched their team play this week and left with their tail between their legs. Uh, and a couple of other sets of fans left remembering exactly why they love this game. Sam, great to see Newport County fans back in Rodney Parade. What was the atmosphere like on Tuesday night? It, it was really good, actually, and I'm, I'm not just saying that because that's the, the the party line at the moment. They create a brilliant atmosphere. Um, remembering back to my last year uh, in the EFL playing for Exeter, they, they can really make a noise at, at Rodney Parade, and that that was certainly the case on Tuesday, despite there not being you know great numbers in there. And the people around the press box that we we spoke to um, during and uh, and in the aftermath of the game absolutely loved being back in there. And I, I thought that that certainly had a bearing, not only on the tempo that Newport played with, but with the urgency that the whole game was played in. I thought it was a really fast match, um, really aggress aggressive. I think that has to have a knock-on effect from the supporters being back in, in the stadiums. Definitely the goal of the week scored in this game, mm. Sam. Matty Dolan's, I mean, it's such a pure strike and it's so arrowed into the very top right-hand corner of the goal as well. I mean, I, it must be some buzz having not seen, you know, no fans in games for so long, having not seen many goals at all to suddenly see that flying in in, in a game of such magnitude. Yeah, I mean, I have zero affiliation to both clubs but both my arms were raised when that that goal flew in <laughs> it, it it was a brilliant moment and um yeah i suppose dolan was the one surprise in in either lineup really uh, you know uh, when you obviously you, th you think of the substitutes that forest green had back available that was a bit of a surprise but yeah dolan being back in there and essentially he's in there because he's got a wonderful left foot he can't really get around brilliantly anymore I know he's been a big player from this season dropping into defence, but in midfield, that set-piece threat and obviously that wand of a left foot that can produce moments like that. So we were right behind it and incredible technique considering the, the line of the ball, actually, the direction that it was coming from to strike it into that far corner is some doing. But, you know, that just, um, yeah, I suppose... 
absolutely emphasizes that beautiful left foot that he possesses and it, mm-hmm. and it was a brilliant moment as, as you say and uh yeah probably the highlight of the week in you know across any of the games i would say sam one of the big storylines heading into this one was a sibling rivalry lewis collins of newport playing up front and aaron collins his older brother forest green formerly of newport uh and i mean that duo there was about one minute of big big action involving those two as well that was a, a key moment in the second half yeah, I, I suppose um, Aaron Collins coming into the game was the one forward banging form, you'd have to say, um, considering the, the absence of Jamil Matt, the lack of real firepower in, in Newport's team this season. And I thought he showed real flashes of what a talented player he is. He just was a little bit isolated. I thought that Jimmy Ball got his setup wrong in the, in the first half, certainly. I know they changed just prior to half time, but... I thought he showed some brilliant little touches and both of them have just got an unbelievable appetite. I think that's the that's the most obvious thing to me. Um, and yeah, Aaron Collins will be disappointed he didn't take the opportunity with the header. Brilliant run, great delivery, I think, from Cadden, who was probably just fresh into the, into the action. Good delivery. Um, but for his brother... I just thought the the attitude to go and close the opposition, his work rate, his endeavour is why basically he's in the team because he's only got the one goal, I think, prior to, to Tuesday. Um, so a brilliant moment. Yeah, absolutely outstanding performance, I thought, from him until he, he got crocked. But what a nice uh, moment, I'm sure, for his family, given that not only both brothers playing against each other, but in their hometown as well. It's a, a brilliant story. And I just hope that he's fit for the second leg because he having seen both the sides in the flesh, could really be the difference. Yeah, a nice moment for the Collins family, except for one member, I think. <laughs> um, what, what what did you make of the, of the two sides? You know, it seems to me that at their best this season, both Newport and Forest Green are teams who like to be in control of possession. Um, Forest Green had more on the day, but maybe that's partly down to being behind for the majority of the game. Um, yeah, what did you make of the two sides? I thought it was really interesting considering where they have been in the last year or two. You know, Newport was as direct a League Two side as you'd likely to come up against, especially when they had Jamil Matt in their their ranks, ironically enough. Um, So to see them playing the way they are, you know, it was really refreshing, I suppose. I mean, Scotty Bennett, a former teammate of mine in the centre of defence, had the ball for the majority of the first half, it felt like, just trying to pick passes I thought Forest Green started slowly, but once they got their defensive shape in order, it was tough for Newport, really. They tried to utilise the two wing-backs, Lewis, who was really impressive, I thought, and, and Haynes on the other side. But when Forest Green were in their kind of deep-set position, it was quite hard. So it was balls down the side for Amond and, and Collins, and, and obviously that's where the first goal came from. So I thought they tried to implement their game plan, but it was a difficult in the first half to be able to do so. And and the, the Forest Green perspective, I just felt they were so much better in the second half. I know they conceded a really poor second goal, but I think I'd be very surprised if they don't start probably with a back three in the second game and two strikers. I think Jamil Matt has to come in. And I just felt that Jimmy Ball got his setup wrong. I thought the two Newport strikers caused their two Central defenders, loads of problems. I thought in the middle of the pitch, they didn't really have a passer. Uh, Jordan Moore-Taylor is obviously more of a centre-half and Don Bernard's a bit of a um, a dog who goes and rats around and, and makes tackles. He obviously picked up a yellow card and they got nothing out of the two wide players, um, Odin Bailey in particular. So when he 
came centrally in the second half and Cadden's left foot was on the pitch and Jamil Mack was there as a presence, they looked like a completely different proposition. So that's why it's just so mouthwatering moving forward. If you know they, they could get that first goal, we could be in for a brilliant Sunday. Ebu Adams will be back from suspension for the second leg. And in terms of guile and skill in the in the heart of the midfield, he could certainly make a, a big difference. So this tie, certainly not over. And what a first leg it was. Thank you for breaking it down for us, Sam. Just before we let you go, uh, sort of non-playoff news. I think Swindon Town are a club that we would implore a lot of neutrals to be keeping an eye on in terms of off-the-field stuff at the moment. Now, yesterday, the... Swindon Town Supporters Trust released a statement saying that they are entering into siege mode, launching a new campaign to starve the club's current ownership out of Swindon Town. Lee Power, the current owner of Swindon. The whole situation is quite messy at the moment. And, you know, it's a, it's a really important period the next month or so for the football club. Yeah, it is. It's it's really sad. Obviously, from from where we were and um, eighteen months ago under under Richie Wellens, such a, a bright future in prospect. So, I have to say, you know, this rarely gets to this point. You know, supporters' voices are heard, but does anything really change at a football club? So, this is a bold move from them, and it's one that, yeah, I'm sure um, they haven't taken hastily they'd have thought about this because essentially you still want to be watching the side and supporting them and relevant of what's going on above pitch level so um yeah this is pretty drastic in, in terms of a support base doing this and it'll be interesting to see how much support um it it, it gains in the next few days and weeks but you know for, for me moving forward the the club needs new direction um they need obviously a new manager in place and they need the opportunity to go and put together a new side a new squad for next season fundamentally that's what needs to happen and until so um there's so many question marks around the around the club but obviously from my perspective it's been really sad to see it and i hope that this court case gets resolved the new owner is in situ quickly and the and the club can build and have a real crack at getting back to where they they deserve to be. You know, Swindon Town should be top of League One. You know, bottom of the Championship. People would maybe pull scorn on that, but that's where they were probably prior to me being at the club and and where they've always had aspirations to get back to. So, fingers crossed that can happen. Yeah, on pitch rivalries aside, nobody wants to see. Fan base is going through what Swindon are going through at the moment. Uh, Trust STFC tweeted yesterday, hashtag no money, no power. The current ownership doesn't deserve another single penny from the dedicated fan base of our club. No season tickets, no match tickets, no hospitality, no sponsors, no merch. Hashtag fan power, not Lee power. Yeah, echo those sentiments entirely. And thank you, Sam, for chatting to us today. No problem, guys. Thanks so much to Sam Parkin for joining us to chat through that game. Advantage Newport, advantage Morecambe heading into the second legs. And if you look at Paddy Power's promotion market, that understandably is reflected in the odds uh, for League Two playoff winner, League Two promotion, if you will. Newport County, 5-4. to four. 
Morecambe 11 to 8, Tranmere 13 to 2, and Forest Green, the large outsiders here at 10 to 1. What an exciting group of second legs we have in store, starting Friday night, running through till Sunday night. Make sure you're across all of those and join the team on Monday. Faye Carruthers in the hot seat. She'll be joined by Sam, by Adrian, and Robin Cowan as well to break down the second legs. And George and I will pop back in on Thursday to preview the finals. I think that is set up pretty nicely indeed. Thanks for joining us this week. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Totally Football League show Extra Time, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything Totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and by following at the Totally Show on Twitter and Insta. Check out all of the Athletic's football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on the Athletic app. The Totally Football League show is a Money Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.